Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levero Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Are you interested in becoming a Lightning Routing Node operator and learning some tips and tricks? Or are you interested in understanding just how profitable running a Lightning Node is and how much you could actually make from this and how many people are doing this? Well, this is the episode for you. Justifer and Tony of Amboss.Space join me to talk about this. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys and instant buys. So if you are interested to get set up and you are looking to buy a larger amount of Bitcoin, remember swanprivate.com is the site for you. Over at Swan Private, you get direct access, you get a dedicated Bitcoin account expert who is available for one-on-one calls. You get hand-holding and guidance on that pathway, and Swan takes Bitcoin education seriously. If you've got friends and family who you think they need a little bit more guidance and hand-holding, but they are a high-net-worth individual or they are working with a corporate or some other entity, send them over to swanprivate.com so they can get set up and start stacking Bitcoin. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can borrow or lend out stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. With Lend at HodlHodl, you no longer need to sell your Bitcoin to get some short-term liquidity. You can borrow stablecoins against your BTC and control your collateral in escrow throughout the whole deal. Stablecoin owners can earn some extra interest by lending their stablecoins out and defining the terms and the APR for their deals. HodlHodl's lending platform is currently going through a major upgrade with many improvements to be available at the end of the month. Sign up to lend.hodlhodl.com with the code SEPTEMBER to get a 50% discount on the platform's origination fee once the lending functionality is available again. For those of you interested in Bitcoin mining, you might have heard about it and not been sure about the best way to get started. CompassMining.io has the answer for you. You can order Bitcoin miners and they've recently launched a whole new product line, Home Mining. You can order miners to your home in the US and they've even got a home mining guide to help you out. On the other hand, if you don't have the facility or place to keep it at home or maybe you don't have good power rates and you're not as uh, concerned about that, well, you can send your miner to a facility that has been vetted by the Compass Mining team. And so in this way, you can get started without having advanced technical knowledge or having industry contacts to be able to buy the equipment. So compassmining.io is the place to go to start mining Bitcoin. On to the show. Justifer and Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, thank, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Stefan. Yeah, so I've been uh, following what you guys are doing with Amboss and I thought it would be a good time to get you on and chat a little bit about Lightning Network just generally, as well as maybe some tips out there for people who want to get started and start running their own Lightning node and things like that. So uh, let's hear a little bit from each of you in terms of your background in, and especially with the Lightning Network and how you got into it. So uh, Tony, let's start with you. Yeah, um, so I started uh, working on Lightning. I started off with uh, Thunderhub. So created Thunderhub like a year and a half ago. And uh, that's like when I really got into the space, really started uh, like following a bunch of people on Twitter and just getting more into it. And yeah, so that, that progressed into, into the project that uh, we're building now. Fantastic. And Justifer, let's hear from you. Yeah, from, for me, uh, let's see, I just started uh, tinkering with Lightning Network, uh, I think starting with a channel to Poyo feed and playing with Eclair and then just trying out the different tools. And then I grew into Raspy Blitz and getting into the kind of the communities that popped up and I found Thunderhub and that was really a user-friendly platform. So I was sending a whole bunch of feature requests uh, to, to Tony and 
that's and, and that's actually how we met. Yeah. Like he he was sending all the feature requests and um and like just he was in the Thunderhub chat on Telegram like asking a bunch of questions and helping people out and that that's where Amboss then came up uh, and started. Yeah. Yeah. And I and Justifer, I guess also you have the Satspace project as well. So I guess that was a bit of a precursor for you also. Uh yeah, so it, it was it was mostly just because I thought Lightning Network was was so cool that I was like, I should write about this. Um, and so I created satbase.org um, and and included a couple of tutorials, uh, which is like what I was doing for like work at, at the time. And so it was just fun to write about Lightning Network and something that I was really interested in. And so, yeah, it kind of just wanted to help out the, the community and kind of pay it forward a little bit. Awesome. And so the Lightning Network has grown a lot recently. So what do you guys think about that? And where, where are we at right now in terms of Lightning Network as a network? Sure. Um, let's see. So part of it is just I see you know, Lightning Network as the future of payments. I mean, it just it goes really it goes really fast. Um, it's it's like cost next to nothing just to make a payment. And it also has all the, the Bitcoin properties, so a borderless, censorship resistant. And then uh, we did have a period of like high fees in the mempool. And I think like right at that same time, Umbral came out and it was like, oh, okay, here's a problem. And the, the obvious solution is to start moving into Lightning and kind of just lock in these low mempool fees and create infrastructure for the future to take advantage of that. Yeah. I think one one of the things that is most attractive for users and why they go into Lightning is because it's so fun. Like there is so many projects that are just like they they don't have to specifically be like the huge company or anything. For example, Pollo Feed. Like I'm sure so many people joined Lightning just because they wanted to feed some chickens with Bitcoin over the internet. So there's so many like little cool projects that people are just like, like, I want to test that out. I want to see what it's about. And it really like grabs their attention. Yeah, that's definitely something many of us can relate to. And so obviously there'll be some people who are just more surface level. They just want to use a lightning wallet and that's all they're ever going to do. They're just going to pay and receive and that's it. And they're not really going to think too hard about channels and running their own node Mm -hmm. and software and all these aspects. But then for another category of people and i think these would be your users and many of my listeners are in that category would be in that category where they start playing with something and now they just Mm -hmm. want to tinker right they they set up an umbral or maybe they set up a btc pay and now they've got their lightning channels to manage and they're using you know rtl thunderhub they're using different software they're talking to friends about how to do these things so can you tell us a little bit about how people might go on that journey and maybe what what was that journey like for you guys when you were going on your pathway of oh okay the difference between just using lightning as a you know purely as a paying user to pay for things versus actually taking that next step and thinking okay how do i run my own routing node right yeah it it starts off just you know because you've heard about this thing called the lightning network and it's it's really cool and maybe you've heard a couple of people talk about it uh maybe on on your podcast for example um and and then you you kind of find a community because like running a routing node or a lightning node is not something that you can do by yourself it has to involve other people um and so there's a 
there's a, a big social network layer attached to it. Um, so like the formation of, of communities is, is very natural. And uh, yeah, so just like helping each other out and documenting the process um, has really accelerated this. So as, as how the process is for a user, I think at the very start, it was much harder to get onto Lightning. Uh, you either had to use like a custodial wallet on, on your phone um, and actually getting your own server up and running. I remember the, the first one I got up and running was I tried to go like the very simple route. How do I get this running? And at the time it was with the BDC pay server Docker installation. So it was very simple, like one click install and, and it, it did everything for you. But it still wasn't, I feel like it still wasn't for everybody. Like it still had some involvement. You still had to go to the command line and you still had to get everything set up. Uh, and then came other projects that were more like uh, focused on using small hardware devices, for example, the Raspi Blitz. And it, it just started iterating a lot into what was easier for users, what was better to drag more users into this space and make it easier for them. And we started getting better um, UIs or better user interfaces for people to come. For example, Umbral that I think has bought has brought in so many people into the space just because of its simple uh, install and, and up and it's basically up and running. Right. And we've seen a, a massive growth in the number of lightning nodes and channels in recent months as well. So maybe you guys want to comment on that or if you've seen the stats recently, if you could comment on where we've come from and where we are today as we speak in uh, September 2021. Yeah, in, we were just checking some stats this week and we saw that just the last year, the size of the Lightning Network has, has doubled. So the growth that we've seen in the Lightning Network this past year has been crazy and the amount of projects that have been coming out. And I, I honestly think it's, it's all community driven there's all of these communities that have come out of just people helping people like plebs helping plebs that I think that is like the idea of all these communities. And it's been a huge help because it's not that easy to find good resources and good documentation on lightning, but just people sharing their experience in it is like growing this, this huge, a uh, like community knowledge base that it has helped so many people. So, yeah, it was just like, I guess, starting off with like open noms for me and then uh, Alex Bosworth, like both like helping me out, um, like as, as a pretty novice use, user, like I've used command line only a, a few times, but uh, what, what we see is the, the growth happening now. And I kind of look at it like the El Salvador news came out and there's like this force that goes like, I know that Bitcoin can't scale to be a global payment system on the base layer. And so we need something else. And uh, Lightning Network seems like the obvious solution, you know, because, because of its in, inherent properties and you have a, a stable protocol uh, behind it as, as the base layer. And we've seen like 11 million Bitcoin or sorry, $11 million worth of Bitcoin added to the Lightning Network just in the last month. We're just watching this explosive growth. And I think the community really wants um, the El Salvador payment system to be a success. Uh, so there's like this altruistic force. I want to provide liquidity to the to the Lightning Network. And 
create some channels that, that point in the right direction to make the payment system work with Bitcoin as the base layer. Right. And it's as, as you were saying, there's just been massive growth. I recall at the Lightning Conference 2019. So I was an MC for that conference. And at that time, I remember it was maybe five or 6,000 Lightning nodes on the network. And as we speak today, I'm, I'm reading off your website, amboss.space, and you can see 15,753 nodes out there today, 72,000 channels, and 2,725 BTC, which is, I mean, it's massive when you think about how far it has come. And so I think also the understanding around how to be a good routing node has also come a long way in that time as well. Maybe you guys could comment a little bit on that. What makes, so just for listeners, maybe if they're learning about the Lightning Network, could you just explain what makes a good routing node? Sure. Uh, first, it starts, you know, with, with a node that, that you're able to use. I think a lot of people, you know, start with Voltage or uh, Umbral is very popular um, and then start nine for the privacy focused ones. And then there's a, a big question of like, who do I want to open a channel to? And like, who, like who is going to be well connected? Who's going to be reliable? And is this someone that I can reasonably trust? Because the thing that might cost me is if we have a disagreement in the future. So that's basically like someone for the technical folks that would be broadcasting an old state or our nodes just disagreeing. And then uh, we're also taking advantage of like low mempool fees. So create a channel at, when it's cheap to do so. And then in the future, as the mempool uh, grows, you can actually pay for the channel open. So it's kind of moving the cost of that, uh, locking in the, a Bitcoin transaction today and creating a channel and then you're able to set fees that would help pay for that channel open and the channel close in the future. And in its very basic form, a routing node just does two simple things. It's receiving a payment and sending a payment out through another channel. So I think one of the uh, biggest things that you have to take into account if you want to have a routing node is that you have to have a good amount of capital that is incoming towards your node so that you can receive and a good amount, hopefully like the same amount in outgoing um, a capacity that you can send. That is like, to me, that's the ideal situation. If a node can, for example, receive one Bitcoin and send one Bitcoin, th that is, I would say, a very good routing node. Uh, so that would mean uh, maintaining that inbound liquidity from your best connected peers and then providing that outbound liquidity at popular payment destinations, uh, which which could be a retail store or a, a mom and pop shop, or it could be a, a swap service. Yeah, very interesting. So let's uh, explain a little bit of that, just for people who are a little bit newer, just to make sure everyone can follow along. So. So for listeners, remember, in the Lightning Network, you can think of it like an abacus and you're moving the beads across from one channel to another. And in this case, if all the beads are on your side, you can't receive. And so what Tony and Justifer are explaining is that when you are trying to be a routing node, you want to make sure that on that abacus, you've kind of got a reasonable split of beads on both sides, such that... And the important point here is, as Justifer, you were just explaining, it's that you've got people who have liquidity inbound to you 
and then you have channels open in the direction that somebody in the network wants to pay to. And so common examples there might be, let's say, a big lightning exchange or a lightning supporting, like a merchant who accepts lightning payments. Or perhaps you might open your channel in the direction of OpenNode or some of those payment processing because obviously they are going to be receiving a lot of sats. And so, so from the listener's point of view or the user's point of view, they are thinking, well, I want to open my channels in a way that they'll get used a lot and then I will receive a routing fee for that. That's the basic idea here, right? Right. Uh, so with, with each channel... Uh, I like to think of it as like you're adding a direction to your Bitcoin. So I'm going to point my Bitcoin in the direction of uh, either someplace where I want to pay myself or I can kind of take a guess at where people want to pay in the future. Um, and so right now with El Salvador, maybe I want to open a channel to the, the Chivo uh, wallet and, and the node behind that so that I can help make remittances really, really cheap for the people of El Salvador. Because I, I know that there's mostly a payment flow. Now, eventually, El Salvador will become, you know, they'll be spending sats and might become consumers. They'll be paying for goods. Now, as people are just getting started on the Lightning Network, these businesses, hopefully they'll be running their own node. But when they're just getting started, they'll probably use a solution like OpenNode. So you could open a channel to OpenNode. And then as, uh, so first there would be remittance flows to El Salvador. And then from the Chiva wallet to uh, some of these destinations like OpenNode, that would be maybe a, a good first step on like how I can support routing on the Lightning Network. And I, and I suppose also important for a good routing node, right? So it's obviously the channels, the connectivity aspect of it is important. Then also, it's also important to have your node be available and reliable. Like right? these are obviously very important factors because if your node is offline, you can't be forwarding payments. And then people who are connected to you might get annoyed, right? Because they're like, hey, I committed capital in your direction and you weren't available when I wanted to pay you some money, uh, some fees. Come on, what's going on here, right? So I guess that's also an element of you're selecting who am I going to be a channel partner with based on are they reliable, right? And so this is maybe another aspect that maybe it might become part of the selection tool set or uh, I mean, arguably it already is, uh, but do you have any thoughts on that aspect? Definitely. So I think one of the biggest requirements that came from Lightning is that you have to have a running server. And it used to be very easy before because you, for example, if you have a Bitcoin wallet, you can have it on your phone. You don't need to have it like constantly connected to the internet. It's just there. And if you connect in some time, you know, it's going to be there. And then came lightning and it has this requirement that you need to have a running server. So it's, it's, it's a hard requirement because it's running infrastructure. It has a cost. It, it, it occupies space. It needs like maintenance and it's not that easy to, to keep up. Uh, so of course, like when, when you're looking for peers that you want to connect to reliability is, is a huge thing that you have to take into account because if they're not online, they won't be able to uh, move funds for you. For example, you won't be able to pay through them. Or maybe if that is the service that you want to pay, you won't be able to, or if that is your, uh, if you're getting payments from them, then you know that sometimes you might not be receiving receiving payments from them. So of course, like a reliability or 
having this availability of or people having constant availability of their nodes is is a huge uh, thing to take into account as well yeah and also i think the aspect around how big the channels are that's a factor as well because if i open if i go out here and open the channel to you and uh, you know reading off amboss.space the smallest channel on the lightning network is like 1000 sats i mean it's absolutely almost hitting the dust limit at that point but you have to pick the right size but at the same time bitcoin number go up right so the price is rising over time so it's kind of like you might open that channel and then in a year's time it's actually worth that channel is actually worth a lot more than it was one year ago it's it's true and uh when we're talking about like availability and liquidity uh we've watched some metrics kind of emerge uh just when when looking at the at the market um so it's a big job to evaluate each node on, on the network because they, they have their individual characters um, and, and they are individuals behind it. Uh, so we've, we've uh, integrated uh, the balance of Satoshi's or the Boz score, which uh, Alex Bosworth obviously is but behind that one. And, and uh, kind of we're, we're showing the history of, of people's uh, or nodes Boz scores. So you can see kind of their performance over time and also be able to kind of use these different metrics that are going to come out to help uh, evaluate these different characters or these nodes. Um, thoughts on the Boz scoring and like how it comes up and who uh, assesses it? And I, because someone who's new might have these questions or is it some kind of social club if you're one of the cool ones you get a nice high boss score or what what's the how should people think about that if they're new and they're trying to figure out how to be a good routing node i i think the idea of these scoring mechanisms is very polarizing like you see it you see it on twitter people are like but what is this score where did it come from like why do people use it uh like in my personal opinion i i don't give too much weight to it i think it's 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 an interesting concept um but what is like what you can see is that people like using it. They like using the boss score. Like nobody knows what is happening behind. Like you have some you have some thoughts that they're doing like probing the network and seeing like how channels this the state of the channels and everything. But nobody really knows knows like what is calculating for it to give you a score. Um and in my opinion, it doesn't matter. Like it's just it's just a number, and people use that number, and they've seen that it works for them, and they keep using it. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like people give give it's too they give too much weight to it, and I I don't know. I, I really see it just like an in, just one interesting data point. I see. Yeah, and I mean, look, longer term, it might be more like there's competing standards, right? There might be boss scoring, and there might be you know emboss scoring, or something. You know, there might be some other way, and they'll be all competing different standards. So, you know, if you don't like this one, you can use some other way. Uh, and so that's one aspect of it. Yeah, there's, there's, I'm sure there's going to be more scorings that pop up. For example, on Amboss, we already added as well. A, there's this other tool that's called Ellen Node Insights. And they also do like some network analysis and they see like, okay, what's the score of your node if you're connected to other like hubs or big peers or how, how, can your node, how many hops uh, can your node take for others to receive a payment? And all of these different metrics, I think they all like get aggregated when, when you're looking into who to open a channel to. It's not that you just check the boss score, but you check so many things like 
you check the boss score, you check these uh, insights, these other metrics, you check if, um, if they're maybe in your same telegram group, if you know the person, if he's in your same city. So there, there's so many data points that people take into account to, to open these channels. So let's get into that a little bit. So maybe talk us through the process of how someone uses amboss.space and yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, I think the first thing that you would see on the homepage is a uh, search. So that is a place where you could enter the alias that um, a, a node has chosen for their, for their node. So that might be uh, this, the silk node. Yeah, you can also look up the, the public key um, for, for your node, which is kind of a, an identifier there. And uh, once you go to that node page, you'll be able to see, okay, the, what's their largest channel, what's their, their smallest channel, and what types of fees do they charge? Um, and I think one of the, one of the things that, that we really try to focus on is you know, make this thing user-friendly. And a big part of that is just have that data available on one screen. Um, and you would be able to kind of compare fee rates and, and decide like, hey, is this, is this a node that I want to connect to? Um, a big part of that is one, do they have contact information? Uh, because if their node goes offline, uh, how am I supposed to let them know like, hey, maybe this, uh, like maybe you have an error going on or like, are, are you aware of this problem or I'm having difficulty? How do you troubleshoot? Because at, at the end of the day, this is a social network and it relies on other people. The other thing that we've added are uh, communities to it. So you'd be able to see what, if, if this node is a member of different communities on the Lightning Network. Even, even on the homepage, we have like a small listing of all the communities that there are available and how many people are in them. So when, just when you get there, you already see like, like, oh, like there's all these different communities and then you can go inside and see all the different nodes that are in them. And it, as Jesse said, like same, same on the notes page, when you go to, maybe you want to connect to some node and you uh, put their pub key into Amboss and you go and see their information and you see like, oh, this, you see a bunch of little tags, like under the name that shows like in which communities they are, uh, do they have a Twitter account added to their profile and all of these uh, like more social metrics. Once you're actually on the note page, then you can copy their pub key and the, their IP address or their onion address and copy that into your, your node to open a channel. And then you'll make a decision on how large of a channel you'd like to make. So for these routing node operators, is this a hobby or is it a side hustle? They're making a little bit of money out of it or are they, are they quitting their day jobs? Just give us a context or give us some sense of where it is at just today. Uh, yeah, a really high-performing routing node uh, would make maybe a 1% yield. Uh, and this is probably someone that is has a good understanding of the Lightning Network already and, and has like already lots of practice doing it. Um, so it's generally low yield, but that's also somewhat, I look at it as sort of a reflection of the stability of this. So we've got a strong protocol um, and relatively low risk. So there's some hot wallet risk and maybe some risk of a force closure. Um, so this is where I might disagree with one of my node partners. But for the most part, very low risk and also consequently 
lower yield. And we'll see how that changes as the mempool heats up with more transactions competing for a spot in the in each block. One, one thing that's very interesting from Lightning is that it's a very, very dynamic network. It's constantly changing and it's very dependent on also on external factors. For example, one very big external factor that I would take into account is meme pool fees. When right now, like for the past months, we've had very low meme pool fees. So um, opening channels, on one side, like opening channels has been very cheap for you. And I think a lot of people are taking advantage that right now the meme pool fees are so low, like to get their node bootstrapped into the network at a very low cost. But then on the other side, if if we have very low meme pool fees, then people can also transact very easily on just on the Bitcoin on chain. So it's very dynamic and it's it's changing so frequently that even these yields that we have today might be completely different tomorrow. And it, it depends on so many things. Back to the show in a moment. Have you thought about upgrading to multi-signature? Unchained Capital are helping customers upgrade their Bitcoin security beyond custodians and even single signature wallets. This is collaborative custody. You can hold two keys and Unchained holds the third one to help sign for you in the instance that you can't access one of your own keys. And for long-term Bitcoin savings, you want to eliminate single points of failure and Unchained are helping you achieve this in a customer friendly and user experience friendly way so if you're not sure about what you're doing they've got a concierge package and it's very popular you can sign up they'll send you hardware wallets they'll do a call with you and teach you and get you set up so go to unchanged.com and select the concierge package within either the personal or business sections and you can use the code lavera to get a discount there my favorite bitcoin hardware wallet is the cold card and you can get it at coinkite.com Coldcard has a feature called Seed XOR. This is a plausibly deniable means of storing secrets in two or more parts that look and behave just like the original secret. So one 24-word seed phrase becomes two or more parts that are also BIP39 seed phrases in their own right. And each of these can be backed up in your preferred method, metal or otherwise. These parts could even be individually loaded with honeypot funds as each one is 24 words. So go to coinkite.com and order your cold cards using the code LIVERA for a discount. And don't forget your Bitcoin backups. Get your Cypher Grid from CypherSafe.io. This is the best value in the industry. You'll get everything you need for $59. It's two plates for all 24 seed words. Those two plates are facing each other to hide your seed words. You can lock it with a padlock. You get a tamper evidence seal provided and an automatic center punch provided. And just like all CypherSafe products, it's fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. So make sure you or your loved ones can access those coins. Get yours at cyphersafe.io using the code Levera. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's a good point about where we are today in terms of mempool fees being very low. Now, there's different reasons people have speculated for that. I think I saw Merch uh, commenting on this recently, and he was saying that it could be mainly just because of SegWit adoption and potentially the adoption of SegWit by blockchain.info or blockchain.com now, where they were previously a massive wallet and sending a lot of on-chain transactions, and now just that marginal improvement by using SegWit uh, and probably the use of batching by a lot of exchanges. Of course, Lightning is taking some load off the chain, as it were, but maybe there's also less of a culture of on-chain transactions, and maybe over time it's going to become more and more of a Lightning thing. And also, the other argument I've heard is that you know maybe people are using stablecoins for some things. So... I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, do you have any speculation on that uh, around 
the fee rates? I, I think uh, looking at the, the fee rates in the context of what are the alternatives uh, is probably a good way to go about it. Because right now, if, if you're opening a uh, 1 million Satoshi channel, you can pay for both a channel open and a channel close for about 300 Satoshis. So, and, and this thing can operate for a long period of time. Uh, so in order to like earn back the cost of those two on-chain transactions, you can charge 300 parts per million. So that's 0.03% transaction fee. Now you can compare that to what I've looked up as a domestic visa transaction at 1.25%. So that puts us 43 times cheaper than a domestic visa transaction. And so we're watching the cost of commerce just continue to drop. So this is a really exciting thing. Um, of course it works for remittances, but it's also going to start disrupting the, the payment, the typical debit card and credit card payment infrastructure. Yeah. I'm just curious on that, just of it, because here, of course, I'm a lightning bull myself, but I could hear the counter argument. It might be something like, look, there's a lot of hobbyists using lightning today, and they are in effect subsidizing everyone's use of the lightning network because they're not, they're not that fee or price conscious. They're just kind of opening channels and making availability. Maybe it's, it would be probably fair to say that over time, that fee rate might have to rise. But what do you think about that? Absolutely. Um, and so as that fee rate rises, uh, that would also mean that the yield, uh, the reward for being a routing node will increase. So as there's more commerce that happens, it becomes more and more attractive to join the Lightning Network. Uh, as simply someone that's uh, saving Satoshis and also using their Satoshis to provide a meaningful service uh, all over the network. It's so lightning is at the end of the day, it's a network and it has the same network effects that you would expect from any other network. So why, why did so many people join Facebook? Because everybody was on Facebook and it's the same thing with lightning. Like people come in and more are rushing in as the more they see other services that are being provided over lightning. For example, a Namecheap, Namecheap, they, they've been receiving um, on-chain payments for quite a while already. And they had so many requests for them to implement Lightning because w when you buy a domain, it's it's not so it's not a hundred bucks. Like buying a domain is like maybe seven hundred uh, seven bucks. No, so it's a perfect amount that you can easily do over Lightning. And the idea that now Namecheap you can get a domain over Lightning and so many other services is just going to make more people want to join and more people want to see like the reach that they can get to with their uh, Bitcoin. Yeah, that's and that's great to see. I'm uh, quite uh, excited to see more and more services now accepting Lightning. And while we're on this whole topic of fees as well, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about how Lightning routing node operators should think about setting their own fee? Because as uh, you might know, there's the base fee and then there's the variable fee. And so what are your thoughts on finding the right fee rate as a routing node operator? I think there's a lot of a disinformant in how you're supposed to price in your fees for channels. Um, I think like at the very beginning, everybody joins Lightning and is like, 
oh, I just, I just, I'm going to set the lowest fee possible so that I help the network the most. But it's actually not that beneficial as they think for the network because it's just having such low fees is just causing a misallocation of funds. So when things are free, people tend to move them even if it's not really useful for them just because it's very cheap. So normally my recommendation is, or my suggestion is to have some sort of fee, like try maybe go up to 100 PPM or go up to 300 PPM and see how it affects your node. And you also get more idea of how others are valuing your liquidity, like how, how others see that your channels and who you're connected to, how much they value it. And it's very hard to see that when you have like a one PPM fee, because you might just be getting funds that are moving just because others want it to move since it has no cost for them. It, it's just misallocated. Oh, the, the other piece that you might look at is uh, some of these uh, swap services. So a routing node will, will look at the loop node page and that's frequent. It's like our most frequently visited page on, on Amboss. Uh, people are closely monitoring the fee rates that people are offering to the loop node. Now that node is, is special because it's reallocating liquidity where it's needed, where, for example, a mom and pop shop won't be part of a community necessarily and be able to say to the routing nodes directly, like, hey, I need some additional liquidity. Can you help me provide this service? And instead of doing that, uh, what they often do is they would use a uh, loop out in maybe ride the lightning and, and they would, you know, hit that button and it would quickly move liquidity so that they can receive payments and that they can have that reliable payment in infrastructure. Now, since they aren't communicating to the network, uh, we might not be able to allocate channels uh, to them, but instead we can just open channels to the loop node and, and that service will reallocate. But there's a, a premium that endpoints, destinations for payments are willing to pay uh, for that, uh, that quick responsive uh, liquidity move. Um, so that's, I think, where most routing nodes are really kind of cashing in because they know this is a popular destination for payments um, and they would be able to provide that liquidity when it's needed. And it's, it's very interesting to see the activity that is happening, for example, for this loop node. Like you can go in and you see like, oh, okay, somebody is giving them one BTC in liquidity for maybe 5,000 PPM. And then a, a moment after you go back in and you see somebody else is offering some same amount, but for 400, 999 PPM. So you see a lot of competition towards who gets to offer this capacity to the loop node so that they like capture the most value possible. And it's very interesting to see. It's, it's a very competitive um, space trying to get to these, these swap servers. Fantastic. And so I'm curious then in your experience or when you're talking to lightning routing node operators, are they individually setting fee rates on channels? So as an example, that routing node operator might be setting you know, 300 PPM on all the other channels, but in the, in the direction for the loop node, he's setting the 5,000 PPM as an example. Is that a, a common thing you're seeing? I think every channel is different. And 
the, the liquidity or the capacity that every channel has and where it can move to is priced completely different. Sometimes you have, for example, if, if you open one, one famous node is the bit refill node. That node has, in, in my opinion, it has so many, so much capacity that is incoming to that node that it's hard to price in your channel because you have to really set like very low fees for it to have some movement. And then you have other sides of, of the network that are like more higher uh, fee channels, for example, loop node or bolts. That's another swap provider. So each channel has like its own characteristics and it's, you have to like play around and see what is the fee that is best for that specific channel. One of the other tools that uh, we've been kind of watching is uh, charge L and D. And so that maybe more generally, it would be just dynamic routing fees. So as liquidity moves, they'll, they'll start to increase the fee rate that, that they'll be charging. Um, and when users turn on this service, what they generally notice is, oh my gosh, my routing income has increased immensely. But we've, we've kind of been noticing that it affects the, the Lightning Network graph that our node receives. So whenever there's a fee rate change, it has to communicate that new fee rate to the rest of the network. And that takes time. And now, now we're displaying our node's graph information on ambos.space, but it can become quickly out of date because just the gossip on the network about this channel fee update is taking a long time to propagate throughout the network. So in the interim, when a, uh, the fee rate is updated, like that channel might not be immediately useful uh, to the people that maybe need that liquidity because they're waiting for that, that channel fee update. Uh, so that's going to be a trade-off that I think users are going to experience uh, running things like charge L&D. So I presume then that that's something people might not be aware of in terms of the kind of the gossip aspect of that. And so what happens then if it hasn't propagated in time to your node? Does that mean that node might reject your transaction because, oh, hey, you weren't paying enough fee, something like that? It can be like, it, it's all about expectation. So when, when you are trying to do a payment over Lightning, you, your node, based on what it sees of the network, it has some expectation of what it, it, what it, uh, the fees that it might expect from the other nodes for the payments. So for example, if one of the nodes that is in that payment route had some fee and they changed it very frequently, and that change is still being gossiped and it still hasn't reached your node, then when your node goes to do that payment through that route, it's, it's going to find a fee that wasn't what it was expecting. So it could be that the fee is higher or it, the fee is lower and then your payment could or could not go through. So in general terms, like what we've seen with Amboss Space is that gossip is slow. And the more the network has been growing and the more nodes that have been coming on, the slower it is because there's just so many messages that have to be gossiped to every single node on the network for it to like grab the whole state of how it is at that point. So it's growing pains. It seems that there's like a bit of a trade-off that uh, like we've, we've made it so that we have lightning fast payments. However, the landscape, uh, the, the network graph is, it's constantly changing and 
as each node is updating its own map of the of the network, it takes a long time to do. Yeah, so that could also cause problems in terms of how easy it is to route a payment, right? So it could cause like reliability problems just broadly. And so who knows, maybe the dynamic fee movement programs have to like rate limit how quickly they change uh, fees as an example. Uh, but again, it's, it's like Bitcoin, it's permissionless, so you can't stop someone. So they could just, you know, be changing their fee all the time, every, you know, millisecond. Uh, and your, the rest of the network has to now gossip that. So I guess that's uh, something to consider. Yeah, I think like, for example, with this tool that, that Jesse mentioned, that lets you automatically set fees based on the channel state of your, on the channel state of, of your node. It, it's like with, with great power comes great responsibility. So you have to, you have to use it in a way that is beneficial for you and for everybody else in the network. But of course there's, there's people that abuse it too much. So they set fee, they set a certain parameters so that it's changing your fees very frequently and they might see it as beneficial for them. Like, Oh, I'm like, I'm pricing my liquidity, like up to the last Satoshi, like every mid I'm optimizing it. And yeah, exactly. But what they don't see behind the scenes is that every single one of these changes is a gossip message that has to be sent to all the other nodes on the network, which can take a while. I think there was some studies on it and it's like an hour for a channel change to be gossiped to the entire network. So that means that for one hour, that channel is basically, it, it's not used It's not used because the other nodes will reach that point and see like, oh, so, like something is different here. I, I, I might not use this channel to do the payment. And it could be up to an hour that it's disabled. So that's interesting. But I guess then at least they do have an incentive to not do it too quickly because they don't want to take their own stuff offline because that will impact their own availability and reliability as we were saying just earlier. So they have an incentive to not be assholes about it, right? So like we could say that at least. Yeah, exactly. The, the problem is that it's not very known or it's not common knowledge that this happens, that this gossip has to be sent out and has to be spread through all the nodes. So it's definitely important for, for people to realize that this could not be as good as you're expecting to have like these very constant fee changes. So uh, keep it to once an hour, guys. <laughs> but um, so with rebalancing and so I guess bringing it back to doing your channels and managing those channels, generally speaking, you don't want all the beads to be on one side. You want there to be some level of a, a balance, but maybe trying to go to exactly 50% every time might not be worthwhile as well. So what's your thinking there around that aspect? Like I've heard different th ideas on this. One idea would be once your channel starts to get a bit unbalanced, you can like try to change the fee to entice people the other way. And then the other way is actually to do, to do say a rebalancing yourself. And then maybe another way would be to use like a swap in or swap out service, like loop in, loop out, bolts, that kind of thing. Could you just spell out some of your thoughts on that? I, I love the, the things that you've mentioned. Um, and I, I believe strongly that it's missing one, which is either opening or closing a channel. Uh, that is one of the tools in your toolbox to say, hey, there's a whole bunch of payments going to this destination and I want to continue to provide this service. And there's eventually going to run out of, of liquidity. So the only way to, to add that really is to open a new channel. Now, like rebalancing is going to move 
uh, liquidity from, from your peers that might be underpricing it. So if, if I'm going to do a rebalance, that means that I have to be able to charge a higher fee than those peers because now I've taken their liquidity. So it's, it's a pretty zero sum game to do a rebalance. But now looking at the swap services, um, for example, bolts or uh, using loop out, uh, you're going to pay a, a premium for that. Uh, but what that is doing is actually moving liquidity from one point in the network to a completely different point, just through using payments instead of rebalances, which would be a, a circular payment to yourself. Yeah, so it's, that's a very interesting aspect. And so another idea I'm curious to get your thoughts on, the growth of some of the you know, thinking around being a routing node operator I think more people are starting to be more serious about actually taking into account all of the fees. Because maybe in the early days, people were just, you know, whatever. It's a small amount of money, just open, closed channels, whatever. But now if you're trying to actually do this either as a semi-pro or trying to eventually someday be a professional, then you have to take into account channel open fees, channel closed fees, any rebalancing fees, any loop in or loop out. Like, is there any thinking or tooling being created around actually calculating that for a routing node operator to, so they can have a little view of what's going on? For tools, so there's a lot of different UI tools that have been popping up that allow users to very easily go in and see like what is the status of their node. So for example, my favorite, of course, I'm a little bit biased, <laughs> is Thunderhub. It, it, it shows a user the information uh, that they have, or it gives them a glance into the status of their node in very easy to read graphs, which, so I'm a very graphical person. I like seeing things like in graphs or on tables or presented in a way that gives you an idea of how it, how the status is very quickly. So all these tools that have been being created, of course, they, they let users not have to use the command line. They let them see how many channel, how many payments they've been forwarding, what is the liquidity on their channels, can they receive more or can they send more, uh, which new channels have been opened in a very instant, like just open a website and you have everything there. Excellent. So the tooling is coming up now and people have ways to consider all these elements so that they're not just naively opening channels without actually accounting for the cost associated with that. And while we're talking about this also, I'd love to get your thoughts on Lightning in a high-fee environment. Like, so maybe earlier this year, the fees were higher and people were like, oh, is this it? Like, is the mempool never going to clear again? And of course, we know now it did. But I think it does represent some interesting challenges and changes to the way we have to think about how we run a Lightning node uh, in a high-fee environment. Do you have any tips or thoughts to share there? Yeah, uh... Let's see. So, so we'll be as as a routing node operator. You'll be creating infrastructure, and the cheap time to do that is is now when the mempool is basically empty. I can pay a, a Bitcoin transaction today and be able to use that a long time in the future. Um, so, I, I look at this as kind of the great build out of of the Lightning Network. Um, and you'll be able to price the, that liquidity uh, based on one, the mempool today when you open the channel, and then two, your expectation of what the fee will be when you close the channel in the future. Uh, 
Um, and so you will be able to amortize the cost of that channel over the life of the channel. So, so that is going to be something that it involves a little bit of speculation, but it's also uh, a massive opportunity for people to, to realize like maybe, maybe it is worth it for me to rebalance today, to do a circular rebalance, because I know that this liquidity is going to be more valuable in the future as we watch the, the mempool fees rise. Yeah, so that's really interesting to think about, hey, because you, yeah, you're right, like you have to think about what the fee will be in the future. And there's also a chance that your channel gets force closed, like let's say your channel partner goes down, their node goes down or something happens like that. And maybe as a safety precaution, after a little bit of time, either one side or the other just force closes it. And so then you're paying a channel close at that point. And you don't know when that could be because they could force close at a high fee time. And then at that point, you're just getting wrecked because now you're paying the high fee. But also it's kind of a countervailing balance is when we go into a high fee environment, a lot more people will want to pay over the Lightning Network. So you're, you would naturally be getting a lot more routing fees coming through in that aspect also. So it's kind of an interesting counterbalance there. I recall chatting to... Uh, a gentleman who was running a relatively large routing node, you know, maybe a while ago, and he was his philosophy was basically to just never bother with rebalancing and just kind of have enough channels in and out that he never really had to, and he felt like it just kind of managed itself over time. What do you think, or do you think that approach is insufficiently sophisticated over the long term? Um, so one one strategy that I like to apply that has been really useful for me is directly trying to rebalance the channels but not by doing like these circular repayments these circular payments or looping out and in but just by setting the fees that you have for that channel i've i've seen it to be very efficient if you want if you have all the liquidity on your side and you want it to move to the other side then just set a very low fee and people will use that channel and it will start moving those sats to the other side and in the, on the contrary if you want the sats to move to your side then just set a higher fee and people will stop using that side of the channel and payments will tend to flow to the other side. And I found it to be very useful, at least in, in my personal experience. Yeah, so basically resetting, setting the fees to help your rebalance go in the direction that you want it to is, uh, is the tip there. And also wondering if you've got any comments around some of the lightning communities that are sprouting up uh, now. What's the deal with these? Why would you want to use those? Uh, I I love the communities. I think the huge shout out to Plebnet, of course, with their girthy channels and uh, and just hilarious references and just a really helpful community. Uh, the other one, actually, the other ones, the Netherlands. I had no idea there were so many people running nodes, and they have a robust community from like a, a tiny country is apparently just full of lightning nodes. Um, and we get a significant amount of traffic from the Netherlands. Um, and then the last one that I really want to give a shout out to is Diamond Community, run by uh, Koji. And that's out of uh, Japan. Uh, they've got a, a very like pay it forward mentality, get people set up on the lightning network and get running nodes. Uh, it's, it's fantastic to see. It's... One of the very cool things to see is that if you're just getting into Lightning, if you're just like 
trying to get set up and trying to learn and trying to see what it's about, join one of these communities. Like it's the best decision you can make. If you, for example, join the Plebnet Telegram chat, ask any question that you want and there will be like 50 people ready to help you, ready to get you set up, ready to open some channels to you. So it's a very, very strong community and it's, it, it's so helpful for others that are just joining and want to learn about it. Awesome. So yeah, so these communities have really come a long way in, in a short period of time because I think if you went back even two years ago to 2019, it was more like people would just hang out in like developer chat groups and it was like you had to, you basically were a developer. But now it's like you don't necessarily have to be a developer. There's just lighting, routing node specific telegram channels and things going. So different ways for people to learn and operate. So I think we're pretty much coming close to the end of time. So can you guys uh, let everyone know where they can find you online and if they want to find out more about what you guys are doing? Yeah, so on Twitter, I would say is like the main main spot where we are. Um, I'm there as Tony IOI and I'm on there as at Justifer underscore BTC. Uh, and our Amboss account is at Amboss Tech. Fantastic. So listeners, go and check out amboss.space and follow the boys. And yeah, thank you for joining me, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Really awesome talk. Thank you. Great to speak with you, Stefan. Just a quick note, there are some conferences and events I'll be attending coming up. So I thought I'd just list those out for listeners who are interested or who might not be aware. There is Oslo Freedom Forum, Bitcoin Academy. That's in early October 4th to 6th, if I recall correctly. That's in Miami. There is Freer Future Festival in Nashville. That's the weekend of October 8th to 10th. Uh, there is uh, Understanding Bitcoin. That's Tone Bases conference over in Dubai, mid-October. There is TabConf in early November. That's in Atlanta. Then after that, there is Market Disruptors Live. That's in Miami, November 12th to 4th. Then uh, Adopting Bitcoin, El Salvador, November 16th to 18th. And I might also be at LubBitConf, which is immediately after that and slightly overlapping. So for those of you who are interested, it'd be great to see you in person. And of course, you can subscribe to my show and get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 307. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.